Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information about our work. You can also leave a comment there. Send a comment over on our contact form. And you can also send an email directly to me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, last week, we are moving through the key concepts just to kind of in a survey fashion of the book of Romans, and we wrapped up the concepts in Romans 4. We talked about Abraham being justified by faith. And next week, we're going to talk about the beauty of the implications of our justification by faith in Romans 5. But today, I have the the pleasure of having my good friend Charlie Parrish, Pastor Charlie Parrish, back with us. You will recall he's been with us several times. He is the lead pastor at Foothills Community Church in Marble Hill, Georgia, which is a suburb of Jasper, Georgia. <laughs> I, I don't know, Charlie. Is, is, is it really a suburb of Jasper? Is it more of a suburb of Atlanta, I think? A suburb of Jasper, but I think a suburb of Atlanta uh, can fit as well, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either one. Okay. About 30 minutes north of the what I think of as the Orlando metro area in a beautiful area. Visit there if you haven't. But Charlie, it, it is uh, an honor to have you here again. Thank you so much, John. Hope I'm not wearing out my welcome. No, this is, uh, I think if I, my math is correct, if I'm counting correctly, I think this is our fourth episode together. And and I, I didn't talk about your beautiful family and five children and wife, Lacey, and, and all the rest. But Charlie's church is Foothills Community Church. You can go to their website. Uh, he also has a podcast there, and uh, you can go to their website and more and learn more about that work. And every time I think of Foothills, Charlie, and I don't want to take a lot of our time with reviewing here, but I think of Chip Doster's pastoral prayer when we attended in the middle of the COVID shutdown a couple of years ago, and and just just the the beauty of that ministry. Though I'll, I'll tell you what struck me: the warmth. Your sermon struck me, and I, I walked away thinking that that is excellent theology being taught at a little church in the mountains of North Georgia and in this beautiful setting, but the warmth of the congregation, even with masks on and protocols in place, and your church was one of those churches that reacted the right way, but the warmth of that congregation still came across. So you know that if if it felt like a warm congregation with masks on and distancing and everything else— it is quite the work, and I know you're proud of it and thankful for, for God's hand in that work. Absolutely. The Lord has is, is really blessed our family with providentially leading us to Foothills, just a great, great con- congregation. Well, we're going to take on today, uh, for those of you who, who aren't familiar with this term, this, this, this might be a little jolting today, but it's incredibly important. We're going to take on the topic of the prosperity gospel. And a lot of you, I know, understand what that is and what it means and how dangerous it is. Others of you might not be familiar. You might be a member of an evangelical church and 
and you you might be sincerely following Christ and maybe not aware of of a, a problem that uh, from within it's a it's a counterfeiting of the gospel that some do perhaps uh, started with good intentions but they they pervert the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and so we're going to talk about that today and Charlie I'm going to leverage your expertise and experience to just give us, if you would, kick us off with a good overview on what is the prosperity gospel and why does it matter, this counterfeit? Is is it really the enemy within the church? And what does it look like? And what can we be more aware of as a result of kind of gaining this, this knowledge about the prosperity gospel? Yeah, I think it is an enemy of the church. I think it's a great enemy of the church. I believe the prosperity gospel is, like the Apostle Paul said, another gospel. Uh, it's not the gospel. It's a counterfeit gospel, as you said a minute ago. And it sounds really pleasing to the ear, which is something you and I discussed in a previous podcast. It sounds almost right if we listen to it on face level, but it has no ties to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It perverts the concept of grace. Uh, and it makes it all about us rather than Jesus. So so just to give a very brief, short summation, uh, it is not the gospel. It is a perversion of the gospel, and it's leading people away from the true gospel. So it is absolutely dangerous. Well, let's talk about what the gospel is first. The, the good news of Jesus Christ it is, talk about that in, in a summary so that listeners know exactly what we mean. We might have folks who tune in this audience is scattered throughout the world. We have a we have a listener in Australia, and I don't get the pleasure of knowing all of these folks. I don't know where everybody is theologically, but when we say the gospel, what what does that what does that mean in short? Uh, in short, the good news. It's the good news that Christ came and died in our place for our sin. Most people don't realize, or or a lot, I should say, don't realize that. But the gospel is not just try to be a good person and win your credibility with God, therefore meriting yourself heaven. Uh, it's the simple fact that we don't deserve heaven and we can't do anything to earn our salvation. We were separated from God because of our sin. Uh, the fall of Adam was the kickoff to that. But we inherited that sin nature and we are born radically depraved, that is radically separated from God. Nothing we can do to earn our salvation. No amount of good works we can do. Uh, we are all born sinners and therefore deserving, according to God's law, of His wrath and separation. But you've got to understand all of the bad news, and that is what I just described, in order to understand the good news. And the good news is that Christ, that God incarnate, became man, uh, Jesus Christ, and He lived the perfect life that we couldn't, we couldn't do it. We couldn't live and that was required by God, perfection. He lived that life and died the death that we deserve. Therefore, in the imputation, uh, he took on sin, our sin, and imputed to us that perfect, spotless record. So when God the Father looks at man, sinful man, who has repented of his sin and stands before him in heaven, He's not justified based on the good works that he did. He's justified on the blood of Jesus Christ that covers him, the perfect spotless blood. So the good news is that Christ died in our place for our sin, lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. Uh, that's grace. Uh, mm -hmm. Grace is the centerpiece of that. Grace is a gift that you did not or, or could not earn or deserve. 
and I think grace is butchered many times. And, and I'll be honest, just saying that uh, in our topic today, I think that the prosperity gospel uh, has misinterpreted grace, and therefore a lot of the error has come from that misinterpretation. Yeah, you know, and and the, the rest of the good news is that he was raised on the third day and was seen by many and ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. But that doctrine of justification by faith is at first jolting to people, especially if you've been raised in the church where you thought that works were involved, that I need to... Uh, you, you know, there's lots of music out there, lots of lots of pop culture information out there that that kind of you know we commonly reference heaven as a place you go to if you're good, and so this recognition that of who man is that we're we're lost, we're dead in our sin, completely dead and incapable of saving ourselves, incapable of good works. That recognition in the gospel and that Jesus Christ did live that sinless life, died on a cruel Roman cross, and was raised on the third day, thereby conquering our sin, not to get in the weeds too much, but but that those things are critical to understand. And this grace that you're talking about is accessed solely by faith, not our best efforts of any kind. That's right. And, and even the word faith, and you know this, uh, the prosperity gospel bends what faith means, uh, you know, faith yes. is, is butchered. Yeah, I want to. I want you to talk about that. And I, I was thinking about this, Charlie, about how to how to make it, you know, positive. <laughs> mm-hmm. This discussion. Uh, I don't want to just discredit people, uh, uh, but I do want. I think we have to discredit some people who who are prosperity gospel preachers, but. Talk about what they teach, and if you want to name an example or two, I mean, I, I always think of Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn, or the list is long, unfortunately, and I know some people are going to say, oh, I've read Joel Osteen's books, and I like him. He seems like a nice guy. Well, he, he does, and that's why that, that, that I think, is the, is the issue with a counterfeit, isn't it? It seems, you know, on the surface, like, like, it's, like it's genuine, and, and, and I'll hear other people say, well, they have good intentions, or they... They, they do good things or God blesses, seems to bless their work. Well, th- those things are deceptive. They're part of the counterfeit. And I, I'm wondering if you could just talk about that, just dive in and discuss from a nuts and bolts level. What, what, are, those, what are those guys I just mentioned and, and others, what are they actually teaching? What could we be aware of? How, how, how might we know if we wandered into a church whether or not they were preaching a prosperity gospel? Well, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, we've got to start back at the beginning, and and a lot of people, like you said, may may grow offended at thinking about calling names like Joel Osteen, like uh, Joyce Meyer. Uh, there's so many other Creflo Dollar, uh, even Kenneth Hagen, many many others. Uh, and and we have to call names if we're guardians of truth. If we're standing on truth, That's you know, right. and you don't call out error, then you're not really a guardian of truth. That's right. If my son was if my son was running into the middle of the road uh, playing ball, and I didn't want to hurt his feelings to tell him a truck was coming, you know, well, I don't want to tell him that truck's coming because I'm afraid I'll hurt his feelings. That would be awful of me to let a, a truck hit my son, rather than screaming, "Get out of the way," you know, even tackling him if I must. And I believe it's the same with calling out false teachers. So, so looking at the prosperity gospel, I'll go back a little bit. We could name modern day preachers that are peddling this pos- or negative gospel, but I want to go back just to to show the 
the roots of this. Um, it goes back to a guy named Phineas Quimby, and I call him the great-grandfather of the Word of Faith movement. Um, he was basically leading a metaphysical cult called New Thought. Now, New Thought teaches that whatever you think about, you will attract to yourself. And this basically means, or he meant by this, uh, negative thoughts. If you think about sickness, if you think about death, then you're going to draw sickness and death to yourself. This was also rooted in occultism as well. So, so you can see the Word of Faith movement, which is the prosperity gospel, goes back to occultism in Phineas Quimby, and it is a metaphysical cult called New Thought that this sprang from. Uh, from New Thought, uh, there was Medi- Mary Baker Eddy, Christian science, you've heard. She was influenced by Phineas Quimby, and she kind of built on his beliefs, uh, basically saying that, uh, that she's created this thing called Christian science, which is really kind of a, a misnomer. It's not Christian. And it's not science. It's kind of like hamburger. There's no ham in it, you know. Uh, but, but Christian science will deny physical sickness. Uh, they'll deny that, that you can get sick unless you speak it into existence, unless you think it into existence. Uh, for Mary Baker Eddy, you know, you can go to guys like Essex W. Kenyon, who taught that God did not create everything out of nothing, but rather he spoke faith-filled words to create things. And that's what Kenyon said. And from from that, he said that believers can do the same thing. We can speak things, Kenyon said, into existence just like God. In fact, Kenyon claimed that Satan was the God of the earth. And he also said that we can attain health and wealth by speaking it into existence. Now, now what what period? I'm just curious. Can you spell? Do you know the spelling of his last name? K-E-N-Y-O-N. And I think that might be... Might be incorrect. You have to check me on that. It, it's Essex W. Kenyon. Okay. And what period, roughly, would he have been teaching this nonsense? You know, I think it was in maybe the early 1900s, okay. uh, and I don't have my dates correct. No, no, on that's, this. that's okay. I'm just curious if somebody's wanting to kind of see where this started. And, and the reason I, I'm sensitive to this issue is you said those words, speak into, and you talked about faith as if, it's this mystical substance of some kind that we have to muster up. And I mean, you, you just covered a lot of ground. Can you talk about that a little more and how I interrupted you? You were probably bringing it forward to today. But what does that even mean? I hear evangelicals say, speak into this or that today. Is this where that came from, this Kenyan guy? This was rooted in, in Kenyan. But also, you know, as I was saying, it goes back to, to Phineas Quimby because he was the father of that new new thought cult that basically taught you can speak things into existence. If you, if you speak negative things, that's what's going to permeate your life. Uh, and it just grew and grew from Kenyon. It went to Kenneth Hagin from there. I, I think many have heard of Kenneth Hagin. Yep. Uh, he claimed, claimed oh, yeah. the same kind of things. Um, and, and what this is, it's called the doctrine of positive confession. And this is what they believe, that you can speak health, wealth, prosperity, notoriety into existence. Now, I, w- I want to sh- ask you something. Doesn't this sound familiar to God's act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2? It sure does. And you know what else it made me think of, and I don't want to get you off track, but a guy named Robert Schuler, if I've got the name right, do you remember him? Mm-hmm. Guy out in California. Yes, he he was a possibility thinking, I think, was kind of a, a phrase that he used a lot. Is that this kind of teaching maybe where, where his roots were as well? Uh, it's the exact same thing. Yep. Yeah. What about like the Tony Robbins of the world and others who 
kind of wake up every day and think your best thoughts and live your best life to borrow. I think Joel Osteen's phrase is, is that rooted in this, this, I believe it all comes. I believe it does. I believe it all comes from this movement, this, this word of faith, prosperity, gospel, whatever we want to call it, it has splintered throughout the years uh, to different formats. So you see Tony Robbins who may not preach the same thing as Joel Osteen or Kenneth Hagin, but it is a form of that. They sound a lot alike to me. They do. They use the same thing. And it's all rooted, if you listen to them, in, in human prosperity. That's what their gospel is rooted in, that you can do it. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you think the right way, then your life will move the right way. Uh, and it's just counterintuitive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you've used the word faith several times, and last time we talked about doctrines of grace, and I think we've covered that pretty well, but they permeate all of life. This notion, you remember the first time we talked, you told your story of your salvation, and I interrupted you and said, this sounds a lot like mine. I had all these doubts and fears because I thought I wanted to be sure that I had done all the right things. And in essence, what, what I was saying, and I think what you were saying is, we thought we had to drum up enough faith that, that we were kind of responsible for and how much was enough. And we talked about doubts and fears and all, all of those things. I'm just wondering for people who are, who struggle with this, with these doctrines that we're talking about today, this prosperity gospel, do they see faith? Is this the real core issue is that they see faith as something we drum up where the biblical teaching is that it is God who grows our faith. Yes. The prosperity gospel, just to answer the question, they basically teach that faith is a force that we use to basically make God do what we want him to do. That's what faith is. Uh, Jesse Duplantis is another false teacher. He, he said this one time, have faith in your faith, not faith in God. Now he actually said that have mm. faith in your faith, not faith in God. So what, therefore, what, what does that even mean? It, exactly. It means to him, and from what I gather from other prosperity preachers, that we use this word faith, and it is word of faith, to make God do what we want him to do. It goes back to uh, to the beginning, uh, Phineas Quimby and Mary Baker Eddy and Kenyon, who basically taught that God created the universe from a substance called faith. And from this substance, basically they believe that if you got down to the very nuts and bolts of creation, past molecules and atoms, you would find this substance called faith. So it's just ludicrous how they have bent the biblical definition of faith into something that is a force that humanity can use to make God do what they want him to do. So what breaks my heart, and I I know I'm causing us to ramble all over the place here, but what just popped into my head as you were talking is, I think of people who are experiencing illnesses and I think of, I think of cancer in particular. I'm a, I'm a stage three colon cancer survivor, praise God. And I think of that experience. I think of the diagnosis and I I know other people have been through far worse than that. I think of Catherine Berger. You might be familiar with she and her uh, husband, Russell, who were in the American gospel film and she's had a chronic illness her entire life and they are faithful to gospel ministry even as they suffer and struggle and she's had she's had some healing and but still struggles with chronic illness don't you worry don't you think that this movement that we're talking about today 
makes people who are ill, who are experiencing illness, think they've done something wrong from, isn't there a danger that they think, well, I haven't developed my faith correctly, therefore I'm ill because these people are promising me prosperity and this doesn't feel like prosperity to me. What have I done wrong? Yes, I believe that when you preach a prosperity-driven gospel uh, to anyone, uh, saying you're going to be healthy if you put your quote-unquote faith in God, you're going to be wealthy if you put your faith in God and you teach that God is basically a genie in a bottle that is just waiting to grant your deepest wishes. And that's the, the gospel or the God that you present. Well, just like you said, what's going to happen when that person enters into cancer or loses a job or has the death of a loved one? Then this God that was presented to them as this answer to all the maladies of the world and just waiting to, to, to take care of everything for you with a life of no harm or ill. That God, either you're going to think that God doesn't exist, or you're going to think, as you just said, I've done something to offend that God. And it's going to lead that person away from the true knowledge of Christ. When you know, We could, we could get down to the nitty-gritty and look uh, at the Gospels in comparative nature. You know, the, the people that say in the prosperity gospel, God is, all He wants is your health, wealth, and prosperity— uh, when we look at the biblical narrative, it, it doesn't even add up. I mean, you look at the lives of the disciples. Uh, John the Baptist, the most most faithful of men, so says Jesus, past, present, and future. Now think about that. John the Baptist, according to Christ, is the most faithful of men. Yet he lived a life of poverty. He lived a life of persecution. And he died having his head separated from his body because of his stance upon truth. Now, if, if the prosperity gospel is true, that God deems to give the best to his faithful, to, to give a life of health, wealth, and prosperity, what in the world happened with John the Baptist and furthermore, the disciples who died as martyrs? It doesn't even add up. No, it doesn't. And, and I'm wondering, I had a pastor one time who said, uh, and you just reminded me of this, he, he said, uh, God is not a cosmic vending machine, and we treat him like he is. And I, I think that's the problem with the prosperity gospel. The, isn't this kind of a gradient issue? Aren't there degrees of prosperity gospel? And doesn't it creep in? My, my, one of my concerns is is maybe if you looked at all the churches in, in the southeastern U.S., there are a number of them. I mean, there are many, many churches. There's a church on every corner. You know, this is the Bible Belt. And maybe they're not on par with the Joel Osteens of the world. And maybe they're not guilty of that much heresy, but this doesn't this prosperity gospel creep into our dialogue, our doctrine, even in evangelical churches that don't identify with this movement. It does. It does. And the danger, I'll just be frank, is television to a certain extent. You know, Christians, faithful believers in Christ will, will watch preachers on television uh, like a, a T.D. Jakes or a, a Jesse Duplantis or something like this or a Joel Osteen. And because they are, quote unquote, pastors, which I would you know shimmer to even call them that, but they're preaching. So they, they believe that that's a gospel message. And it comes, I believe, from not uh, we talked about this in a former podcast, but people taking the word of man over the word of God. Uh, they know more about what they hear rather than what they see in the word of God. Um, and, and I think it's a separation there. I think it's a, an indictment on us 
that we need to know the scriptures more than we need to know about what man says. So even in evangelical circles, as you say, I, I have met people in churches, in good churches, that, that these churches are preaching sound doctrine, that when you have one-on-one conversations with them, uh, their theology begins to come out, and it is more or less word of faith. And it is the culture that we live in. It's, it's in Christian bookstores. It's being peddled on television. Uh, when you think of, of preachers today or, or well-known preachers, if you ask a, a regular person, you know, just somebody that, that's watching television or, or living their daily lives, who is a, a well-known preacher of the gospel? A name like Joel Osteen or, or Benny Hinn may come up. Uh, and it's because our culture presses these kind of things. It elevates this kind of gospel. These are the ones that are receiving the most attention. And if you've noticed, men like John MacArthur, faithful men, uh, Justin Peters, Paul Washer, these guys that we have, you and I have shared an affinity for, uh, they're not very well known uh, by, by the world at large, at least. And it's because their gospel is not the gospel the world wants to hear. It is not peddling, God's here to give you your best life now. It is the biblical gospel of Christ that basically says you're going to suffer if you are in him in this world, but have faith because he has overcome the world. And that's the hope we have. And what do you say then to a person who says, I've struggled with this. I've struggled with the fact that I'm not healthy and I'm not wealthy. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I've heard this false doctrine in particular, I just want to read a verse real quickly. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight is where I think some people get distracted by a couple of words in that verse and sometimes follow this teaching as a result. And, and I know there are other passages that they, they twist, they take out of context. And we've talked before about eisegesis versus exegesis. That is reading into the scripture versus reading out of it what it actually says. But Romans eight twenty eight, the English Standard Version says, and we know, I think this is English Standard, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I know I'm catching you on, on the fly here, and I'm going to get to Romans 8 on just the regular podcast episodes in a few weeks. But what, what does that mean, actually? And how can we kind of set that straight and explain it clearly the way Paul intended it? Well, I love that verse, uh, and the world tends to take it out of context. And we don't key in when we read that verse many times that that it is said that all things work for good, not just the good things, all things, cancer, sickness, war, calamity, poverty, all things work for good. The perfect proof of this is the worst ever tragedy to ever happen on the face of the earth, and that's the crucifixion of the Son of God. That was a bad thing. I think everybody would agree at the time, the disciples didn't have the full picture of what was going on. They were lamenting, wondering how their Messiah, their Savior, uh, their teacher, Jesus, could have been taken from them and crucified. They were hiding in an upper room, fearful, because they didn't understand the full picture. They didn't understand that all things, even the preordained crucifixion of the Son of God, all things were ordained by God, planned by God, uh, I should dare say predestined by God to work for good. So when Romans 8 says all things work together for good for those that are in Christ, uh, we read it sometimes to mean, well, God means everything in my life to be good. No, that's that's out of context. Paul wrote that all things, and all things is all things. <laughs> I mean, it's the yeah. good and the bad. 
We tend to negate the bad, though. It's our own interpretation that skews what we're reading. So the language matters, and all things means all things, and it doesn't say what that verse doesn't say. And and I I think sometimes, don't you think we feel like the average person feels like, well, I'm not a theologian, and I I, I don't know what that, how, how would I know what that means? And and don't you think sometimes we're afraid of studying Scripture ourselves? And, and just even in my simple mind, I can read that verse and understand it, can't I? And if I look at, you know, if a person's confused, I, I would tell them, I don't know whether this is good advice in your opinion or not, but I would tell them, go online to a, a resource like Blue Letter Bible or something else and look at three or four translations. Look at the, even the NIV, the the English Standard Version, New American Standard Version, New King James Version, even the Old King James Version, and look at how the the verse is written. And And, you know, when you do that, I see the NASB says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So it really says exactly what you just said it says. It doesn't say all outcomes will be good in terms of human perception in over a short period of time, but God causes all things to work together for good. So isn't the problem, and I know we've talked about this before, our view of God and our view of man, our answer to the question, who is God and who is man and how does God relate to man? Isn't that the core of the the real underlying issue with this movement? I believe so. I believe it goes back to, uh, maybe I can summarize with a quote by R.C. Sproul. He said that we don't know God. He once said that. We don't, we don't know who God is anymore. And it's because we, we have taken Scripture and we've made it about ourselves. We've made Scripture culturally to be a fortune cookie uh, about us, and we have ripped it out of context, not reading the whole, you know, whole verse or the whole chapter or the whole book even. I'll give you an example, a very popular, uh, I call it a coffee cup verse in our culture uh, that is used by the prosperity gospel quite often is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Now, we love that verse, and people will rip it out of context and say, this is God's plan for my life. In fact, if you're a believer, this is God's will for you, that, that he has a plan for you, a great plan for prosper. I've, I've, seen it. I've seen it on coffee mugs. Coffee mugs, exactly. And, and again, in the verse, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Okay, they, they take that and they say, therefore, God wants us to be healthy and wealthy. Well, without going fully into the context, because it would take us another episode to do that, that that's a promise that God made in a particular time to his people who were enslaved at the time. They were in bondage, and God promises his people, I have a plan to prosper you and not harm you. This is for your good. And the people that God made that promise to at that time never lived to see the fulfillment of that promise. They died in bondage. Their great-great-grandchildren were the recipients of that promise uh, to be led into the, the promised land. And, 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 you know, from there, we take things like that and we rip them out of context and make them about us when it was about a specific group of people at a specific time. And the prosperity that God promises is ultimately our our identity in Christ and our ultimate salvation in Him in the in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not here and now, and we tend to make things for the here and now, which is totally against what the Bible is is basically relaying to us. Now, here's what I hear you saying: context is important, and maybe a takeaway for everybody listening to this today 
is be careful when a pastor or a teacher of any kind is teaching scripture and they airlift a single verse or a phrase out of context. Go back and read the context, and it's helpful to know the historical context, as you just mentioned, but it's not, you know, you don't have to have a, a decoder ring to understand it. You don't have to have a, a, a seminary degree, although those are great. You can read and study scripture in context to be sure that the person used scripture as it was intended, as it was written. Yes, yes. And, you know, we, we look at things, it's amazing how the human mind will interpret things to benefit itself. Uh, you know, we read the story of, of God parting the waters for Moses. Well, nobody ever reads that account and says, you know what, that means God's going to part the, the seas for me if I just put my staff in the sand. You know, nobody ever reads the, the Bible in that context. But when it comes to prosperity, then we'll look at something like a Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and go, you see, that verse means for all time, for all believers, everybody, rather than it being uh, something that is being described that God was doing at a particular time. Uh, we read the Bible in our favor. Yeah. Yep. So, and if you're like me, and I think you're that you're wired this way too, and I think a lot of people are, and you're somewhat analytical, and you wanna you wanna understand the the depths of truth, then you hear something like that, or you hear this uh, reference to Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for good. When you hear that, and you you examine your own life, and you say, wait a minute, this isn't working for me. I must not be in the club. I must not have developed my faith enough, and isn't that one of the problems that a, a theology system based on me and my drumming up faith is awfully flimsy, isn't it? Well, this goes back to the word of faith. And, and they believe that, again, if, if you're sick, if you're not having prosperity in your life, well, then it's your fault. Your faith is not strong enough. So can uh, I conclude? And, and what, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can I, can I yeah. conclude then if I'm in that movement? What, might I conclude that that person who is just uber wealthy, who everything they do from a business standpoint turns to gold, that they must have more faith than I do because I'm struggling to make ends meet for my children? That's the message. That's the message. That if, if you are truly blessed of God and favored of God and living in faith, then you are going to be healthy, wealthy, and all of these other things. That is the message. That is their gospel. Um, I'll give you an example of how perverted these teachers are. Uh, there's a, a teacher, a prosperity teacher named Todd White. Um, if you listen to him, I would say don't listen to him. Uh, but he has basically said in one of his sermons that the cross is not the revelation of our sin, but the proof of our great value. And he goes on to say that heaven went bankrupt in order to get us because we are so worthy to God. We have so much worth to God. Okay, well, Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes of sinners, they have become worthless. So again, these teachings are not even adding up. People are hearing these charismatic men, these these men that, that basically have great oration skills. They can speak and convince people, but they're not comparing what is said to the scriptures. They're just taking it on face value. Well, and follow this just for a second. I'm just thinking big picture if we really hear, and you're, you're absolutely right about the oratory skills of, of some of these people, and, and they have a way of packaging the message so it, it does sound good. But think about the conclusion. Think about the, I like to think about the end of things. And, you know, where, where's this going? Americans are in debt, aren't they? 
And the average American household has no savings, lives paycheck to paycheck, and is in debt. And and the average American can't, you know, Dave Ramsey preaches this stuff, and so do a few others. But Americans who are working in their working years can't be unemployed for very long because they don't have sufficient cash reserves and so on. So so if I'm sitting in, and these, these people have millions of followers in some cases who hang on every word. And if I'm one of those followers and, and I'm, I'm analytical and I go back and I, I look at, well, we'll look at most Americans, you know, God, God m- most people in those congregations are, are not wealthy. I know the statistics on, well, I knew them a few years ago. I'm not sure I'm up to speed, but something like six or seven out of 10 people in this country are going to encounter cancer personally mm-hmm. as some form of cancer. So, yeah. so what does that, that, doesn't that leave us to despair if we're in those congregations? Isn't, isn't that good news, the prosperity, even the word itself, prosperity gospel, isn't it just depressing when you think about it? It is. The measuring stick of the prosperity gospel is a successful, healthy life, uh, not Jesus Christ. That's, and mo- and that's most people measure. don't have that. That's right. In, in human terms. That's exactly right. You know, there's another doctrine that I think that will flesh this out that they believe in called the little gods doctrine. Creflo Dollar preaches this a lot. He claimed one time that because we are made in the image of God, that means we are, quote unquote, little G gods. And what he meant by this is just like God, we can speak things into existence. We can speak our prosperity, our health into existence uh, and, and all of these different things, just like the creation order. Boy, I, I think I think even the, our Mormon friends would agree with that concept, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's a it's a doubting of the biblical God, the character of God, uh, the sovereignty of God. Uh, listen to this. Many hen once said that prayer is the basically us giving God permission to intervene in our lives. And he goes on to say that God can do nothing without our permission. And that is a God that is subversive to man. But that's what's being peddled. That's what's being taught. Joel Osteen uh, once had a sermon where he was talking about uh, the account in Luke chapter, I believe it's chapter one. We're preaching through the book of Luke right now in our church. And it's uh, the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah. And if you remember the account, uh, Zechariah was told uh, by Gabriel that the angel that he's going to have a son and it was going to be John the Baptist. And Zechariah was an old man. His wife was barren. And Zechariah basically doubted God, doubted the word of the angel. And so God struck Zechariah mute uh, because of this until the birth of his son. Well, Joel Osteen's interpretation of why Zechariah was struck mute by God was this. He said that because Zechariah's speech was so negative, God knew that Zechariah's negative unbelief would stop his plan. So he closed his mouth. Now, can you imagine Mm. this interpretation is a helpless God looking upon Zechariah and saying, oh, no, he's going to ruin the plan of redemption. Everything that I have foreordained before the beginning of creation, this man's going to ruin it with his negative thoughts. I've got to act fast. Let me just stop his mouth. That, that's what's being taught by men like Joel Osteen, and this is a submissive God. It's not a sovereign God. I would, I would say the prosperity gospel is very clueless on many things. One of the big things is the sovereignty of our God. Yes, and having a high view of God is essential. If we study Scripture, we see that, don't we? And yes. you know what I worry about, and there's some irony in me saying it that way, 
is if I was really under this teaching and I, I heard all of this and I looked around and I said, well, you know, that group is jumping up and down happy and applauding all the time and just they're living their best life now. And isn't that, isn't that wonderful? But deep down inside, I would have to say, well, wait a minute. What, what about me? What? And I've heard, I've heard a watered down version of this teaching that says, and you have to be careful when you teach this. I realize that, but it's wrong to have doubts and fears. If you have doubts and fears, then you might not be one of us. And we should examine ourselves. We should preach the gospel to ourselves. I understand all that. But doesn't that teaching really cause us to want to violate the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, be not anxious? It makes me incredibly anxious when I'm the center of the universe. If if God's plan is predicated on me drumming up enough faith, we're in trouble. <laughs> as yep. I look at it. And it makes me incredibly anxious because I am not God. I have a, by God's grace and through the study of scripture, and that's that's one of his means of grace for us, I understand that God is far bigger, far more transcendent, far more apart from us than I can comprehend. And man, and the implications of our depravity are far greater, pushing us lower than we like to think of ourselves. Isn't mm-hmm. that one of the core issues and don't people in this movement, wouldn't they become anxious by definition? I believe so. I believe that it would cause you to become anxious. I believe that evaluating your life and every time you have a sniffle or have a financial downfall, then according to their theology, uh, your faith would have to come into question and you would have to question, am I right with God because I'm not being blessed in this way? It, It goes back to the fall in Genesis. We could go, we've been going back and back and back to different teachers in history, but if you want to get real down to it, uh, the fall in Genesis and Satan said to Adam and, and Eve, uh, you will be like God if you eat this forbidden fruit. Yep. And man wants to be like God. And most people don't realize the fallacy of the word of faith and prosperity gospel, what they truly believe. Uh, the, the Word of Faith movement in its very doctrine uh, believes this. This is taught by men like Jesse Duplantis again like Joseph Prince. They believe that when uh, when Adam was in the garden, at the very beginning of creation, Adam was exactly like God. He was a quote-unquote little God. And then when Adam sinned, he lost his godhood. Or and, he lost and there's his no ability. basis whatsoever for that in Scripture. None at all. None at all. But But when Adam sinned, according to the prosperity gospel, he lost his godhood. And then Satan gained control of the earth, and, and Yahweh, the true Yahweh, was kicked out of the earth. And Satan now is the God of the earth. Now, here's what they believe about salvation. When a person gets saved, they gain their godhood back. Because, again, we are little gods. We're Yahweh's agents on this earth. And that's why you hear people like uh, Gloria Copeland, Kenneth Copeland's wife. and He's a prosperity preacher who once got on stage, and a woman preaching is another sermon for another day, but she got on stage in front of their congregation and told them that we have the power to control the weather. And, and it's ludicrous, said that, that her and her husband one time were flying to Hawaii, I believe, or something like that, and saw a tornado coming toward them, and they just rebuked the storm, and it flew away. Uh, and, and it's crazy, she goes on to say, that we have the power because of the spoken words in us that are powered by this this idea of faith, we have the power to control things like the weather, even. Mm. That's saying that we are just like God. We have the power to speak into existence our prosperity. We can control the weather. We can stop bad events. 
um, you know, I believe that there was there was one teacher. Uh, I don't know if it was Kenneth Hagan. Uh, one of these prosperity teachers claimed that Christians shouldn't die until they're 120 years old because because we have God in us. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely crazy. Well, and I think. You know, I say to my students all the time things that probably sound kind of stupid because I say them all the time. I am not. You are not. We are not the center of the story. God is the center of the story. And then I also say, and I just thought of this when you just walked through the the implications of our salvation, of the gospel itself, the, the cross of Jesus Christ was not plan B. This idea that we are on this earth to glorify God and love our neighbor as ourselves that's not an afterthought. That's not a reaction to, oops, there's sin in the world. I better go to plan B. God is sovereign over all things. Scripture teaches that very clearly, and I get tremendous comfort in that. Amen. And you mentioned sin, uh, the doctrine of the word of faith definition of sin. They believe that sin is not really something that separates us from God. Rather, sin is something that keeps us from living our best life now. Uh, Joseph Prince is another prosperity preacher, and he was speaking on repentance one time, and he got it right at first. He said repentance means a changing of mind, uh, metanoia. Now, that's true. He got that right. Yep. But then Prince goes on to say that uh, he doesn't say the word repentance in his sermon, and he says, basically, I'm convincing people to, quote, unquote, change their mind, repent, from negative thinking to positive thinking. So you see how he just butchered the whole very definition of repentance being a change of mind into just think positive thoughts, and that's repenting. That's getting away from negativity. Mm. Uh, it's a self-help movement. It's not a gospel. Yeah, and and there, you know, I know there are probably some people listening who say, you know, there, this sounds like truth can be harsh. It can be, it can be hard. I like having my ears tickled, and you're telling me. You're, you're telling me something that 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 isn't what I've been raised thinking about God. This sounds cold and cruel, and I I would push back. And I, I'm wondering if you could just close us out with with this thought. And this this has been very helpful. And I, I'm glad we we rambled through all of this because I think we need to hear this. I need to hear it. I need to know. I need a pastor like you to talk about. I almost said speak into just to be funny. But to talk about these truths, because these are helpful reminders, we might not follow uh, Joel Osteen. We might say, well, you know, he's we know he's a heretic uh, or Benny Hinn's a heretic and others have identified uh, this. And and we might not relate to that group of people, but we do have that tendency to do what you talked about Adam and Eve doing, which is the sin of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, thinking more of ourselves than we should. But the, the beauty of biblical truth is our great hope. This, not whether or not I'm going to stub my toe today, not whether or not I'm going to be ill today, or whether I'm going to accumulate wealth today. And good health is a good thing, isn't it? And wealth is, it, there's nothing wrong with wealth. And it's good to work hard and good to have your needs met as long as we're good stewards of, of wealth. But, but this, it takes tremendous pressure off when we understand biblical truth, particularly when we simplify it to where we preach the gospel, we teach the gospel to ourselves every day. I'm wondering if you could just practically, because this is a lot of these lessons to me end up right here. The way 
if you're hearing this and you don't want to be a victim to this any longer and you say, well, I walk into a Christian bookstore and I don't know where to turn. I, I, I want a self-help book. I want, to, I, want to, I want to know what to do. I need a plan here. The plan is read your Bible and pray every day. And I'm wondering if you could just comment on that. What can people do if they're struggling, if maybe they're in a church and, and they say, you know, Charlie and John sound like they're, they're really kind of negative about my church and I, I've had some of these concerns and I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do next. How would you counsel using your pastoral gifts, because you have them and I don't, how would you counsel somebody to kind of start down the path of moving away from that errant teaching toward biblical truth? I think it's a deconditioning of, of if you have been conditioned in that teaching, uh, what you've been taught and what you've thought about who God is and who we are. Uh, the Bible's not about us. God's Word is not all about us. It's not telling the story about how we can have our best life now. You mean he's, As, he's the center of the story? He's, he's the center of the story, yes. We are not the center of the story. Thank you. But yeah, he, he's the center of the story. It's not about us. And again, the prosperity gospel teaches that we are, are the center of the story. The prosperity gospel teaches if you if you get down to what's being said, dear listener, if you're hearing this and, and you followed any of these teachers, the prosperity gospel at its very core is telling you that you can have your best life now because of the faith you have in Christ, and that's your reward. And therefore, if you're not rich and if you're not prosperous, well, it's because you know you have a lack of faith, which is contrary, again, to the disciples and all the faithful men of Scripture. It also pro- proposes that, that you can have your best life now because you are basically God. Uh, another, I'll mention this, John Hagee, who's a very, very popular preacher in many people's eyes, have written many books, but, but he said this speech is so powerful that he believes that if someone says, I wish I were dead, they invite the spirit of death into their life. Uh, and that goes in to show you that all of these people that we've talked about speak it, claim it, and you have truth. That's not truth. Ask yourself this question. Where is truth found? Truth, it's found in Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we're getting truth from any other source, be it these prosperity preachers, TBN preachers, or, or books at a Christian bookstore that claim to get us our best life now, is it rooted in the truth of Christ? Are you reading anything you read? I, I would tell you this. If you have a book from a Christian bookstore and you're reading it, are you reading it with your Bible open? And the verses that you're directed to, are you reading them in context? Are you going to the verses before and after? Are you reading the book in its proper form, or has it been ripped out? Does it match the lives of Scripture and the men in Scripture, the women in Scripture? Uh, When you look at the disciples, do you question things? Like, well, hey, if this preacher is telling me that I deserve health, wealth, and prosperity— why didn't Peter, why didn't John, why didn't the disciples and John the Baptist, Paul, why didn't these guys have a prosperous life? Because apparently that's what the prosperity gospel says, you know? Mm. So we have to question these things uh, and ask of ourselves, uh, am I understanding the true gospel? Uh, I would say if you are questioning, if you're looking uh, to, to find truth, uh, it sounds redundant, but the best place to start is the Word of God uh, and reading it in right and proper context. Yeah, and and I would say, just based on 
the truth of scripture and the way it's laid out, uh, the book of Romans is a great place to start. Just reading through Romans, reading through the gospel of John and Charlie, I, w- I would say this too, uh, uh, give give the folks your, your church's website just real quickly, because I think another critical Another critical thing to do is to come under the leadership of a good Bible teaching church. And those are those can be challenging to find. There are there are many of them. But talk about your your website in case there's a person out there who says, well, you know, I'd like to hear your sermons or I'd I'd like to become more familiar because I I don't know where to go locally. Um, Talk about that, if you would, just in closing. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, foothillscommunitychurch.org, foothillscommunitychurch.org, and you can find uh, our sermons there and, and teachings. But but I would even say this, regardless of it's myself or, or another good pastor, even I know people like John MacArthur would say this as well, whatever you hear, even from, from a good theologically sound pastor, weigh even that against Scripture. Never take the word of a man. Uh, that's one thing that I, I regularly tell my own congregation. Do not come and sit and just take in what I'm here, what I'm saying. Read your Bibles. Look at the verses in context. Uh, match up what I'm saying. You know, the Apostle Paul uh, said the Berean Jews were more noble than most others. And I find it so fascinating. The reason he said that is because he said that they weighed what he said against Scripture. The Apostle Paul preaching the gospel, you know, Paul with a uh, ripping open his shirt and he's the, the super apostle. Even Paul said, these Jews are commendable because they're not taking my word for it. They're listening, and then they're going back to the scriptures to see if they're true. Uh, That's what I would say. I would say anybody you listen to, uh, listen with the word of God. Don't take the word of man, any man. Take the word of God. That's exactly right, and that's what scripture teaches. And uh, Charlie, I can't thank you enough for for coming on. I want to do this again uh, because we we really, (laughs) we've just scratched the surface of this topic and it's important. We approach this in a loving way. It is counter to our culture. And I like your example with your son standing in the middle of the road. I, I think about a train coming around the corner on a train track sometimes. And I think it is loving to provide these cautions. It is unloving to say, well, you know what? I don't want to upset the apple cart. I don't get any pleasure from upsetting the apple cart and naming names. But I know that Christians fall away when their faith isn't rooted in biblical truth. And I don't want any listener of this podcast to be a victim to this really thin, dangerous heresy that is damning. I do actually want, just to borrow the phrase for a moment, all of us to live our best life now, and that life is to submit to the cross of Jesus Christ and the truth of Scripture, and in humble repentance and reliance on Him. And that is a wonderful life. That is true contentment. It is an anxiety reducer. Will we still struggle with doubts and fears? Of course we will. So, Charlie, thank you for being here. I hope, folks, you'll reach out and contact him. But it's been so good to have you again. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. And, folks, we're going to next week, we're going to go back to Romans 5, the beauty of Romans 5 after this. Oh, my goodness, I can't after this discussion. I can't wait for it because it is some of that biblical truth that Charlie was just talking about. So go to his uh, church's website. Uh, For more information on our work, you can contact me, and I I can pass your comments on to Charlie as well. You can reach me at johnwarrenmedia.com. You can email me directly at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Please like, subscribe, 
And uh, otherwise, uh, comment on and share our podcast posts, if you would. Uh, we, we do want to spread the word. Next week, again, we'll be talking about uh, the beautiful truths of justification in Romans 5. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.